see if you can guess who I am. I I, I met Paul. Uh, he was just a kid from Newark, New Jersey, who loved baseball. And we got to harmonize and we called ourselves Tom and Jerry. And the rest is history. And now I like to more than sing. I like to just relax, paint, read, and uh, occasionally uh, enjoy a fresh beverage. I'm still a big coffee guy after all these years. They say older guys like me shouldn't do it so much that it's a bridge to troubled water, <laughs> but I'm still, I'm still in there. And I just found out about a wonderful, I just found out. I sound like Blanche. Your, your accent. I, I just, I just found out <laughs> about this great cold brew drink that everyone should try uh, from a Bronx vendor, uh, <laughs> like a Grady's, southern lawyer. <laughs> and I say, <laughs> Grady's cold brew. It's made with chicory. It's uh, a session brew. If you get the Grady's cold brew kit, however, you can brew it yourself and brew it exactly to the way that you would like it. You can get boxes. You can get jugs. Um, you can order from their site, Grady'sColdBrew.com. And if you live in the United States, if you use the code. Late Era 20, you can get 20% off your first order there. So please check it out, Grady'sColdBrew.com. And in case you didn't guess, guys, who was I doing an impression of? It seemed like just you were yourself. I was actually uh, Art Garfunkel into Blanche Dubois. So uh, hope you guys enjoyed. <laughs> AKA Blanche Garfunkel. <laughs> listening to Late Era, uh, the podcast from Osiris Media, where we talk about late career albums by classic musicians, uh, the weird, the great, the undiscovered, uh, the terrible. Uh, and on today's episode, we are going to be talking about Surprise by Paul Simon, his 11th studio album released in 2006, a collaboration with Brian Eno. Uh, my name is Andy Cush. I am the bassist in the band Garcia Peoples and also a contributing editor at Pitchfork. My name is Winston Cook-Wilson. I play in the band Office Culture and make music as Winston CW. Hey everyone, I'm Sam Sadomsky, staff writer at Pitchfork. And we have a very special guest to introduce. You, you may have uh, heard of him initially through the Tim and Eric awesome show, Tom Goes the Mayor. He is an extremely prolific creator of great television over the years from bedtime stories to on cinema which is built out a rich universe one of the great works of art of this past decade i would say also a great musician he's about to put out an album called fear of death on september 25th but he's also released a couple albums of trump related material and in glendale and what the brokenhearted do one of my favorite comedians of all time Mr. Tim Heidecker. Thank you. Well, it's a nice summary. I appreciate it. I'm going to hang on to that one and listen to it by myself. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Things are kind of picking back up and a lot of, there's lots of uh, sort of the show Moonbase is starting to, the promotional uh, 
uh, efforts and figuring out how, you know, like all these, uh, how, what the marketing for that's going to be and all these sort of uh, kind of complicated aspects of what we do is, is all kind of coming, coming at once. The record, like all the, you know, the fun thing about doing stuff is making stuff, but then the, the part where you have to figure out how to tell people about it and how to shape it and explain it, that becomes a little, always becomes a little difficult. So right. I'm in that kind of phase. And that's Moonbase 8, which uh, is with Fred Armisen and John C. Riley, right? And yes. And just got picked up by Showtime. Yes. It's been, it's made, it's fully finished and there's six episodes coming in sometime this fall. So very happy that that's going to be seen. And you're in the Office Hours studio there. You're a, you're a real podcaster. Yeah. We've been, I mean, I've been doing that for about four years, sort of on and off. But since the um, pandemic, there's been nothing else to do. And we kind of, uh, me and Doug Lusenhop and Vic Berger uh, decided to kind of ratchet it up a little bit and take it a little more seriously. And it's been a lot of fun. Everyone should uh, subscribe, watch yes. the show on Patreon, support the efforts in the, co- in the Heidecker compound there. <laughs> um, Thank you. So, God, where to start? Do people know what we're talking about? Like, uh, the, I guess people are listening, knowing what record we're talking about. Yes. We're, talk, we're going to talk about um, Paul Simon's surprise right. with its extremely ugly cover and, its, <laughs> uh, and all of its uh, strange breakbeat alt-rock textures and uh, old man malaise, I guess. Right? We're going to sink our teeth I will into say- that. That cover art was designed by Chip Kidd, who is from not my hometown, but like the neighboring town, uh, Shillington, Pennsylvania. Wow. So I remember like at the time that was like kind of, you know, like Berks County pride. Uh, I also, I think like the cover got a little too much hate. I don't think it's that bad, you know, definitely like uh, <laughs> gives you a feeling. What sort of feeling does it give you? Yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> Well, to me, it represents purity, but we can get into that. <laughs> a stretched out baby face. <laughs> yeah, it was on like um, Pitchfork's best album covers. So <laughs> the kids, it's almost it's oh, it's so bad it's almost a Bob Dylan cover, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Sam also likes the Bob Dylan covers, so that's oh, true. Right. I love the Rough and Rowdy Ways cover. Wow, I, I don't mind that one so much, but like. So you look, like you look at most of his co- like love and theft is a strangely terrible cover yeah mm-hmm. pretty atrocious. Uh, yeah the 80s ones are bad like yeah knocked out loaded or shot of love <laughs> yeah, yeah they're really shot of love's kind of good kind of comes back around the empire empire burlesque, burlesque is is got to be the worst i was just gonna <laughs> say i think cool. that one's good oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> that one has like its own aesthetic world going on i feel like it was ahead of its time we did a previous episode, Tim, about Under the Red Sky, which is the Dylan mm. album from 1990. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with it. But. That's the one that came after his one of his comeback records, the um, Daniel Lanois record, yeah, right? After uh, Oh Mercy. It came oh out, Mercy, yeah. right. And it, it's not great, right? No. It was, it was a, a letdown because you're like, Bob is back, and then he follows <laughs> it up with trash. Yeah, well... Um, we tried to find the good in it, but it does have the song Wiggle Wiggle, which is generally <laughs> thought of as his worst song. I want, can I ask something kind of controversial to you guys? Because Sam, I know you, you're a big, you're a big Dylanologist or whatever, but how does it sit with you like the, because I've heard these rumors now and they're like starting to get more real that like on the latest record, which I'd love, 
but there is this like he is just there is like he's taking old R&B and blues songs and literally some for, in some cases like literally replaying them with his band and singing over like a new <laughs> new lyrics mm-hmm. he it's weird he weirdly doesn't get called out for this in any in any way what's up yes. with that how does That's he get a, does anyone just do people just not care or or don't know, or like, it's weird that he's kind of exempt from, from credit from, and I'm a huge Dylan fan. So for me to say it is uncomfortable, but it is, it is like a little, it makes me feel a little gross to be honest with you. Yeah. He's always had issues with properly crediting people. Even on this album, I think like the credits are weirdly uh, sparse, like in terms of what people actually contributed to it. Like, yeah, I definitely think that False Prophet should have gotten a credit to that song. Uh, yeah. Who was it? Uh, Billy Emerson. Because it, it's pretty much identical. I mean, there's really no arguing against right. that. Yeah. But, Anyways, si- very, very much a sidetrack. No, I mean, probably we'll talk about the appropriation issues around Paul Simon's career, which I feel like have been more on the surface post-Graceland. Um, right. The Los Lobos story. The album what we're talking about seems like actively trying to re- retreat from like a years of kind of being in that borrowing other styles world, world music world. Well, I was, I was wondering when listening to it, like, it's like, what is, what is Paul Simon's relationship to actual like drum and bass music when like, you know, the, the breaks come in and stuff like that. Like in a way it is still its own kind of like borrowing from music and like even from black music, but that just happened to be a little, a little more current than, or a little more like adjacent to, to pop at the time or something like that. But it's like, it's hard to imagine that Paul Simon had any like real, you know, knowledge or enthusiasm of like Goldie or like, you know, drum and bass producers. Like it well, feels like Brian, it's some sound for him to use. Brian Eno did the appropriating for him. Yeah, perhaps. exactly. That's a good way to <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like it's more on the Eno end of the creative <laughs> right. spectrum. You could also say that, you know, the U2 albums are appropriative too. There are a lot of, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of different directions we could go with appropriation these days. And we're, consider- we're thinking, that's what we're thinking about these days. That's what we're considering more and more, which is good. What do we know about Paul, uh, their collaboration on this? Because I know there are some, there's, there could be a version where, you know, like... Eno gets sort of a rough tracks and then he does his post work on everything or was it more collaborative? Does, does anybody know about what their relationship working relationship was? Believe, I, I heard that they would get together for like five day patches of time and like work intensively. And they did that okay. over a couple of years, but I, I have to imagine that he was kind of writing these songs sort of independently because the, the vibe of the album, right. Is like, here's like a section that sounds like a Paul Simon song. And now here's like this barrage of like alt rock guitar or a breakbeat or something. That's like in the a section, the B section is like a real sweet mm-hmm. vibe. Something yeah, I thought was funny. It was, um, in the, like the research I came upon a quote that was like, we found that five days was the maximum we could work yeah. together. Like, so right. it's <laughs> like they really like at a certain point they were just like, yeah, this isn't productive. Like, which I think leads to some of the weird, um, like abrasion of the sound and the songwriting and subject matter. Yeah. I would say overall it doesn't work for me. Like there's, I don't, I find it too jarring that I'm just a Paul Simon purist, I guess. Like I'd, I'd like to hear like a, a D uh, 
whatever you know de-technofied version <laughs> of some of these songs or just take out the the weird uh like trying it feels just like it's trying too hard uh mm-hmm. to be different or relevant or something i don't know so yeah. So there's Tim great what, tunes. Can, on, there's like great tunes and and stuff, like great moments and stuff throughout. But when the when the trap beats or whatever, I, I, I'm just that's just not a kind of music I know very much about too. So it's, it feels weird for me to talk about it. But what what's your uh, like the history of your relationship with Paul Simon, Tim? Like, are you a, are you a longtime fan? Oh God, yeah. I mean, I uh, definitely grew up with Simon and Garfunkel uh, in the car, and my parents were big big fans of of uh all that stuff and um you know i th- i think his solo stuff is you know his his first solo album uh is like you know a, a, what i think of as like a perfect record almost you know it's just mm-hmm. uh one of my favorite things ever and and i you know and then we we all listened to graceland and i still love that record despite its problems um so i i just you know i've seen him I've only seen him once play at the Hollywood Bowl, but I just love him. I mean, he's he's trouble, you know. There's definitely like, um, you know, there's stories about him being kind of a an a hole <laughs> or just a difficult guy uh, and a, and a you know sort of trouble tr- problematic issues with credit and all that stuff. But you know, he's his. I don't think there's anybody like him as a songwriter. It there, he takes. He does, you know. He appropriates from other places besides sort of like the obvious. Um, obviously, he comes out of the folk tradition, but I think in the '70s, he, he's there, there's a lot of Randy Newman influence in him that mm-hmm. I think he's talked about, and there's just a lot of humor in his, in a lot of his, you know, songwriting and material, uh, subject matter, um, and he always got to work. You know, he always ended up making especially in the 70s he just surrounded himself with such great players and great you know people with great taste so those records sound so good um obviously like steve gadd playing with him is an obvious example but just i mean on that solo record that first solo record it's just like man that sounds the the electric piano and the you know the dry drums and everything it's just i that's my sweet spot the whole thing so yeah i love them the record I in his in his late era that I really really do genuinely love is the one after this so beautiful so what which I think has some of his some of his greatest late era songs on it and uh, and the production is a little more reined in a little more kind of you know focused on a Paul Simon sound I guess yeah just digging around the last the last two records are of originals and then the re-recorded ones are all really beautiful. This is like the the questionable transitional record, I guess, which is the kind of thing that we kind of lean into a little bit right. in the cast. Yeah, I guess we kind of normally we go around and talk a little bit about how what we're bringing into this as Paul Simon fans, so we can just quickly run it through. I'll start. Um, I also, I didn't actually really like Simon and Garfunkel that much, but I... I'm glad you brought up the self-titled because I remember getting that and thinking it was like the greatest thing ever. And I got it around the same time that I got into Randy Newman records. So I, I, I kind of, I do find an affinity for Paul Simon and Randy Newman that I don't think people talk about that much, even though they did mm-hmm. do a song together in the eighties, which they I did. Kind of felt like there's like, 
sort of this nice little crossroads because after that I feel like his music became more kind of character driven and sarcastic and uh, what was the song I don't know it it's curious. the blues from Trouble in Paradise the Randy album okay, um, okay. so I got those things are associated in my mind because I got into them at the same time and then just kind of went through that my parents had records of all of them I also really love There Goes Rhyme and Simon and my favorite is Rhythm of the Saints for sure because not only does it have like the the world music thing and build off of that it builds off a bunch of different styles after Graceland and then also it has sort of the more some some more standard or like you know Americanized things and they're like mm-hmm. all sorts of insanely good musicians on that too um, yeah and then I I dip my toe into the later stuff now and then. Yeah, uh, I'm not a huge Paul Simon fan. For some reason, I just never really connected with his music or I found it like maybe, like I was just listening to the wrong stuff or I found it too cutesy or something. But what actually turned me was that album he put out a few years ago where he was redoing his older songs. Yeah. And I just thought it was really beautiful. And I like looked into it and I, listen to the originals and the way he kind of changed the lyrics I thought just like showed how much he thinks about this stuff and I don't know I thought that song on there um, How the Heart Approaches What It Yearns was like one of the most beautiful songs I'd ever heard and so that kind of sent me re-listening to his stuff and it was kind of a gateway for me. Um, A lot of songs on there from his album You're the One from 2000 so I ended up really liking the songwriting there Um, yeah so kind of coming to him though i don't think surprise is one of my favorites but starting to get it um i feel like i grew up with his music in the same way that like a lot of people my age did that like graceland was always a cd like playing in the parents car uh you know the simon and garfunkel classics were just sort of present in my life all the time the last couple years i've gotten more into like I love There Goes Rhyme and Simon. I think that's pretty much a perfect album. Uh, One thing I'll say just that hasn't been said yet is uh, uh, I think he's a really underrated, um, extremely tasteful guitar player. Uh, I love the playing on, even on Surprise, like there are just, his playing is, he's never playing more than he needs to uh, but he's always doing something a little bit unexpected. Um, his sense of harmony is so sophisticated, but he's never like beating you over the head with it. And one thing that I loved, on, I love about Surprise upon investigating it recently is like because there's all these beats happening. Like there's such a strong um, like the the rhythm is so anchored by everything else that's happening in the music. It lets his guitar parts just sort of like float through the ether and like be their own thing. And uh, that's what I have loved the most about listening to this album is just like zooming in on like the kind of all these different guitar parts kind of happening at the same time. I feel like on this record, you can tell when he really likes one of his guitar parts because it gets like looped and reused. Like that song Father and Daughter, I really like, but that one riff in it just like keeps showing up. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's a good riff. Yeah, it is. He's a great guitar player. I mean, you watch him like, um, uh, you know, acoustic finger picking, uh, like a song like American Tune. Uh, which he's he, he ends up playing a lot in his later years at like awards shows or like if he's been given some kind of medal or something like he, he that's like his go-to song it seems like and 
I watched so many YouTube videos of him in his later years playing that and his his finger work and is just such a, a great folk acoustic guitar player that I think gets overlooked a little bit when we talk about Paul. Another bit of context for you and Paul Simonton that I wanted to ask about, which is um, I am a cuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I... Oh, you're going to play it. We could just listen to a clip to, you know, <laughs> jog your memory. <laughs> yeah. I am gay. Ooh. <laughs> and I voted for Obama. I am a shit. Yeah. Um. <laughs> for the Clinton campaign and the left wing mainstream press. I'm a pussy who gets fucked right up the ass. I am a cock. <laughs> I am a I think that's Vic Berger playing that lead, by the way. I think no that's way. a little tidbit. Yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, the rest of that track, I think, is just a karaoke track that I grabbed <laughs> up the internet. But uh, it, the karaoke track didn't have that lick, didn't have that, that signature part. So I, <laughs> some, I asked him to do it because um, he's a pretty good musician, actually, too. But um, yeah, that was, I really, I, the reason I did the karaoke is I just wanted to get that out very quickly. I didn't feel like assembling a whole production to, uh, to record the backing track. But um, yeah, I mean, that was just during a period, I think, right before the election or right after it or something. I can't remember exactly when, but uh, it was just, you know, the trolls were in, uh, it was high season for the trolls. They were coming at me hard every day and it just was so silly the soy boy and beta male and cuck and it's just like you know i should you know have ignored it but i just thought it would really really either uh you know confuse them or anger them or maybe even entertain them to just play into it for a few minutes right i forget if if there was some kind of uh communication with paul simon about it or his team about putting well, it on one of the records yeah we asked we asked uh permission and they said no but i don't know if it's it was unique to i think he might just have like a blanket policy about parodies of right. their songs i'm just trying might, to imagine him listening to it i feel like yeah he i don't like know if, it. <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know he, he seems to have a good sense of humor that you know Sort of like his association with Saturday Night Live, and I don't know if you ever saw the special he made for NBC from the like right, right. I think it might have been the first or second year that SNL was on the air that Lauren Michaels produced. It's on YouTube, and he produced this Paul Simon special that is with I think Charles Grodin directed it or is a big part of it, and mm-hmm. it's actually really funny. Like there's some there's some really funny moments in it um, that you should watch on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Have you seen his movie, One Trick Pony? I, I, n- I never have, no. Is it any good? Uh, I just, like, I was reading about it while I was researching this, and I'm curious about it because Lou Reed plays a character in it. It oh. just seems, like, wow. kind of crazy of its time type <laughs> thing. It's funny how I can be, like, when I was doing a, a Beatles podcast for my Patreon, and there's there's certain things where I'm like, I'm a huge, huge, obviously a huge, huge fan. And there's things that I just don't, don't see or don't like, uh, like, I can't remember what it was. If it was like yellow submarine, the movie, like, ah, I don't know. I think I saw it when I was a kid, but I'm not watching that 
as an adult. <laughs> or like Ronaldo and Clara. Like I have a giant Ronaldo and Clara poster in my studio, uh, the D- Bob Dylan movie, and I don't. I've never sat down to to do that to yeah. do that whole movie. Yeah, me neither. Anonymous <laughs> also. Never seen that. Oh, I love Mastin Anonymous though. I yeah, I just do. rewatched that one. It's wild. Yeah, it's fun. I like it. Yeah, I think One Trick Pony doesn't quite have the stature of these movies. <laughs> no. <laughs> they tried but to that song it. I love is for that movie, which yeah, also I'll, made me want to see it because if like there's yeah, the tunnel like track. That. No, no, how the heart approaches what it yearns. Uh, right. Yeah. I'm yeah. A, I mean, I love Late in the Evening. I think Late in the Evening is a great, a great tune. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of um, those types of projects I feel like is important to the context of this which we should talk about is the cape man which was kind of like the 90s thing that made him reset um so you want to get into that yeah so for listeners who aren't familiar with this period of paul simon's career uh in the mid 90s he made this musical called the cape man this is kind of coming off of the momentum of graceland rhythm of the saints he's like as popular as he's ever been in his, in his uh, decades-long career. Uh, he makes this super ambitious musical about a guy named Salvador Agron, who was uh, this Puerto, Puerto Rican-American gangster in New York City who uh, killed these two teenagers. It becomes this huge media sensation, and uh, something about um, the story captivated Paul Simon, so he made this, this whole musical about it and an accompanying album called Songs from the Cape Man. And uh, it completely bombed. It only ran for six weeks on Broadway. Critics hated it. Uh, I, th- I think the album has lots of beautiful moments on it, but he sort of makes the mistake of singing many of his songs from the perspective of this 1950s uh, Puerto Rican gangster and sort of trying to... Uh, <laughs> really inhabit the voice of that character, dropping a lot of racial slurs. Uh, oh, boy. In, just in ways that are sort of uncomfortable and funny. We had a little segment of that that we can uh, cue up. Yeah, I'd like to, like to give that a play. On Baldies, they treat you like your piss. From the heart of the body, oh, now, my brother. We tell them motherfuckers suck on this. Yikes. I think we got something to talk about here. He he does like he does he does grab that Randy Newman style of I think I'm talking about think about I, <laughs> yes, I think about think about say like very like kind of black voice a little yeah. like a little southern. It's not who he is at all. Also, I don't need to hear any doo wop ever. <laughs> yeah, he gets some doo wop moments. Well, yeah, it's funny because that Puerto Rican accent. All of all of Paul's accents kind of flow into each other. Like I feel like he does like a New Orleans thing. Yeah. You know? That's his main mode. And this basically just sounds exactly like the New Orleans thing. But it's the someone other than Paul Simon accent that he's doing. A lot right. of fucking New Orleans moments on the uh on surprise. Yeah. Uh so after Songs from the Cape Man bombs, he gets really deep into ayahuasca, which yeah. um <laughs> is supposedly the thing that brings him out of the uh like depressive period that he experienced because of the like unsuccessful nature of that project something i thought was funny in my research is it it was like 
he would go on uh, long ayahuasca trips with some of his male friends, which I just thought it was funny that it specified. <laughs> he was like, out with the boys. <laughs> Doing ayahuasca with my male friends. Like, like you do. Yeah. Um, so um, Art's Art not invited to that experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would think he'd be not on the Art list. Gets to hear all about it later, but he's not invited. Yeah, I want to know about that. I, I want to know, because they did all these reunion tours. And I like, you know, there are various levels of discord between them. I was just going to say, I have heard this. It was from a good source. Uh, I don't know how you can verify this. Uh, but the, the story I heard, because we, we knew it was a person that knew kind of the inner world of that world. And we were saying, what is the deal between those two when those reunions happen? Like, what is the financial situation there? Mm. Um, and... They said, well, art gets 10%. Wow. <laughs> and it blew our minds as it just blew yours. Like, what the fuck? It's like, you know what? There's no reason for Paul to ever... And this was back... You know, I, this was probably 20 years ago or something now. Because they would do it... They did it a few times throughout the years, you know. Um, so there's no reason for Paul to do it. There, Paul could go and do his own solo world tour and it would be a huge... He'd sell just as many tickets. General, you know, and it was art that left. It was it was art that stopped. You know the 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 duo. There was no. It was art that left to go do movies, and and you know. And he said, "And art's happy to take the ten percent." He's like, you know, <laughs> um, you know he, he doesn't. He probably doesn't. You know, and it's it's Paul's band. It's Paul's. You know, he's the guy that's been out there really keeping this big career going. Um, right. And really could play, you know, a full set of of Paul Simon, and he he writes the songs and everything. So that's not verified. Somebody could contest that, I suppose. But um, sounds totally it, plausible. It, it wow, makes yeah, sense. I believe it. And and also, Paul, I think, is known as being a bit of a, you know, he's very very the nice way to say it is very, you know, deftly, you know, is a he's a deft businessman. One story I heard which was pretty sad is like, I don't know the last one they did. If it was this one that is in 2003, like around this time, but there is one where Garfunkel signed on to do it, not kind of being transparent about the fact that his voice was really not in good shape and he just like wasn't hitting any notes. And that, that sort of, I feel like really drove a stake in the relationship for good. Right. Um, Yeah. You know, complicated partnership. And so you're the one, the the Simon solo album uh, immediately before Surprise uh, was, I believe, originally thought of as a Simon and Garfunkel reunion album tied in with the touring they were doing around the time. Something went wrong between them. Paul Simon erased all the recordings of Garfunkel's voice that he had on the takes wow. and uh, redid it as a Paul Simon solo album. That's this kind of like back to basics sounds exactly how you would expect the paul simon album to sound in 2000 uh it's got some great songs on it um and then that leads us to uh surprise the follow-up uh featuring brian eno who uh simon said he was intrigued by his soundscapes after visiting him at a studio in england yeah let's get into it let's talk let's talk this through yeah do people have favorite songs? Least favorite songs? Nothing stands out as, for me, like, nothing stands out as 
Uh, <laughs> that sounds like the beginning of Here Come the Warm Jets. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I, I didn't have anything that was like really noxiously bad or, or sort of stand out great, I guess. I don't know. Everything is about a love song. Is really pr- there's just a lot of there's a lot of pretty, uh, you know, m- melodies and and lyr- you know sort of a man in his in his later years reflective lyrics, um, but nothing like oh god what a great single what a great like I could imagine you know nothing that kind of cut through for me. The only like hit song would be the father and daughter, which it had already been the theme song to the wild thornberries for four years before this it was, had already proved its stuff one thing i thought about the album is there are a lot of questions on it he asks a lot of questions he's not sure what the answers are you know just like an old man searching for an aging man not old uh, searching for searching for answers trying to provide advice kind of kind of stuff little political edge I think a flaw of the album is that even when it's not asking big questions, Eno kind of only has one zone, which is the super dramatic kind of like adventurous feeling. (laughs) So like a song like Outrageous, which we can play a little of, I think it's like kind of just like a fun sort of light bouncy song, but it has like this edge to it that like, I don't know, to me it like really goes against sort of the conversational way Paul Simon writes songs and it just makes his lyrics stand out in a kind of ugly way. I'll put that one on. Yeah, let's hear let's hear a little bit of that. Accent's really bad on this one. That's a tough Yeah, this one. is the this is the worst song on the album, I think. Your pockets off the misery of the poor outrageous the crime some human beings must endure. It's a blessing to wash your face in the summer souls to strain. It's outrageous a man like me stand here and complain, but I'm tired. 900 sit-ups a day I'm painting my hair The color of my mud, okay I'm tired, tired Anybody care what I say? No, painting my hair The color of mud Who's gonna love you when you look so gone? Like this part especially Tell me Like I can kind of imagine This so is like a little acoustic thing Yeah, great like, hook Given that momentum yeah, It just feels off yeah, it like implies some kind of like seriousness or some like I don't know earnestness that like sometimes undercuts the humor in the in the songs. I feel like this is a trademark of a lot of Paul Simon's later songwriting, though. Although it's not always like exaggerated as much by that heavy of a thing. I I read this New Yorker profile from from of him from like 2016. One of his quotes is, "I try to get all the opposites into the same song if I can." <laughs> and I feel like this is like embodying and structure. I feel like you're the ones the same way where it's just like the mood shifts of the character or whoever like directly mimic the song, you know? Yeah. Right. A lot, a lot of that reminds me of like, I kept thinking of like 50 ways to lose your lover, the way that the music in that, uh, so like drastically changes between each section, like in a way, like some of the the like weird sonic twists uh, in in this album felt like familiar Paul Simon moves, but just like expressed in this very different, more slick electronic way. I think t- I mean I can imagine there's this thing that happens, especially with older artists uh, who are known for innovation or known for experimentation, is that they have 
someone like Paul Simon has all the time and money in the world to do this record. There's no pressure, really. There's, and so it, I can imagine, and he's a very analytical and neurotic and anal kind of guy. I'd imagine that there's just a lot of like kitchen sinking on everything. Like I can do, I can, we could produce the, sh- you know, and it, then it, it becomes very overproduced, you know, yeah. um, overthought. I was listening, not to change the subject of the artist, but this new th- a song, a single that came out from Elvis Costello, I was like, where, you just hid your song in production. Like there's no song here. It's like this <laughs> weird, like dark, uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but it was just like, what What the hell are you doing, man? Just like, <laughs> how about just put out a, like, you know, get a band in a room and play a song that you wrote. It just, there's obviously a, a place for, you know, the studio to, to be a part of what a song is about. But I, I, you know, I just think that's a tendency for some of these older artists to get lost in, in production. They're, this part of their career, they were kind of doing something similar, right? Like Elvis Costello was doing every possible style he could think yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Like the New Orleans record with Alan Toussaint, and then he's like still doing classical stuff and like standard Z albums, like the yeah. country stuff. Like, yeah. He's a great late era artist. We've got to get into him at some point. I think that does speak to something else that is kind of off with this album, which is like, I think I'm a U2 fan and I think Eno's type of experimentation works well with U2 because like at the core, U2 song is like a huge chorus and like Mm -hmm. verses that just kind of build to that. So any extra ambience just adds to that grandeur. But these songs are so naughty and complicated and conversational that it can't help but feel cluttered because you're like trying to listen in and hear what he's saying. But like there's all these like auxiliary beats in the background and then the whole (laughs) instrumentation changes i feel like the first song is a good example of that i put that on also just like a guitar tone i probably don't ever need to hear on a paul simon (laughs) record right yeah this is straight up late youtube it also sort of sounds like the beginning of Airbag. Like this oh, definitely yeah. feels like super like Radiohead University to me. It'd be funny if Paul Simon came out with this record, like, and all the photos were him with a like the wraparound shades and black leather jacket <laughs> and like real Bono vibes. Yeah, there are certain like drum breaks that come in that are very like Welcome to the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think this like part is just like great songwriting, like just the questions it raises and the way he gets at it. But it's Brian, yeah, and I think Eno kind of thinks it's this huge like chorus, but to me it's a lot like more intimate sounding than that. That's a great line that sticks out there, though. If the, if the answer is infinite light, why do we sleep in the dark or something? That's pretty neat. Yeah. He's always got those great little, you know, if you really think about it, that doesn't really mean anything. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, just like neat turns of phrase and like good, good, good lyrics. You know? Yeah. 
My favorite lyric on this record is on Sure Don't Feel Like Love when he says, I remember once in August 1993, I was wrong. And I could be wrong again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love Shirley. It's like something almost like David Berman ask about that. Y- yes, totally. He, what's the one where he repeats the um, uh, "Nothing is different, but everything's changed." That's another That's a great one line. on this record from yeah. "Once Upon a Time There Was an Ocean," which I really well, liked actually. Yeah. Which he also I'm a little he, more cliche though. I'm, I'm a sucker for that one before. I'm a, I'm a sucker for that kind of little. Like, he does it. He does it in that. He does it in that last verse that he added to the boxer that only I think he does live, which is after years and after change upon changes, we are more or less the same. So the opposite of that, I guess. Right. Wow. Yeah. Which is a Tim, good line I was going to ask you if he's like a distinct influence on your songwriting, because we talked a little about this when I interviewed you, but he does the thing that you do a lot where he'll say a line and then he'll be like, well, not completely or... Well, like, mm-hmm. I don't mean this by that, you know, which right. I know you do on the new record. Yeah, um, I, do, I, I always think I'm, no one really points out that I, that I sound like Paul Simon, or, um, but I, I'm definitely, I think, more influenced by him than I, I think people think. And lyrically, yes, for sure. There's lots of doubt and um, second guessing and, you know, I think a lot the attempt uh to be clever you know <laughs> uh like there's there's lines that i think are are um clever like too um ain't it a shame he's too dumb for suicide uh too self-absorbed too filled with pride you know i was like cool that's an i like that you know and that feels paul simon to me for whatever reason yeah kind of dark kind of you know he can the guy wrote Richard Corey when he was like 23. If you listen to Richard Corey from Paul, Simon and Garfunkel, it's like all about this guy who killed himself. Uh, it's like a suicide song it, it like that sounds like a bird song. So he has like a lot of dark, uh, dark humor or dark subject matter. It's like singing about divorce, uh, you know, singing about Paul, you know, the, Tom, uh, only living boy in New York, you know. It's like uh, singing about Paul, uh, Art Garfunkel leaving him for a career in Hollywood. So, yeah, I love that there's auto there's like, you know, autobiography in his stuff and there's characters in his stuff and um there's yeah, there's, there's humor. So, he's he's a big he's a giant for me. Yeah, it feels like there's some thematic similarities between fear of death and this. There's there's a, there's a fear of death that lingers over Paul Simon's albums from this period, I feel like. Yeah, for sure. Properties and on the record, which maybe was my favorite, Tim is uh, strikes me as having some Simon-esque qualities as well as Randy. Oh, well, I mean lyrically, but also there's a there's a chord change that's very much uh, very much um, still crazy after all these years. Uh-huh, yeah. It's like a, just a total lift, you know, which you know we're allowed to do once in a while, but yeah, um, gotta do it appropriating from the appropriator yes exactly (laughs) as always uh, this episode is made possible by our lovely sponsor Grady's Cold Brew uh, Bronx based uh, coffee company that uh, makes what is in my opinion the best cold brew you can buy just brewed up a a bag uh, with my Grady's Cold Brew kit Uh, I drank two cups this morning and I feel wonderful. 
If you're a customer in the U.S., you can use the product code LATEERA20 and receive 20% off of your order. At Grady'sColdBrew.com. Take it from us. It's great coffee. You're going to love it. Grady'sColdBrew.com. We do a a little, like, assessment segment of the the podcast, which maybe we could get into. Yeah, sure. Okay, so we end every episode with a segment we call Fantasy or Delusion, which is a reference to uh, this Billy Joel late career album of classical piano compositions called Fantasies and Delusions. (laughs) Uh, We (laughs) use that, which we'll be doing a future episode about. We use that as our yes or no metric for whether we uh, liked an album or not, basically. So if you liked it, it's a fantasy. And if you disliked it, it's a delusion. And everybody just kind of, you know, talks for a minute about their kind of final closing argument about their thoughts on the album. Uh, Sam or Winston, do one of you guys want to go first or I can? I can take it. I'm going to continue my streak and say this album is a fantasy, even though it's deeply flawed. I think that it is kind of like I don't know, between the really back to basics, you're the one, and the actually challenging and satisfying work he did in like the 2010s. I think it's a really good bridge between those eras. And it's like he pushed himself really far to do it with a collaborator who I think wasn't the most natural pairing. But I think without this album, you don't get the work that followed it. And that combined with the lyrics, which I think are pretty much as strong as ever. I'll say that it's overall a success to me. I think it for for like the the off-putting aesthetics at at times or uh, the more I listen to it the more I kind of get used to it and then I kind of was thinking about this idea of the A and B sections and like how the, how these things even though you know kind of doesn't get the point he's kind of reacting to the lyrical shifts in a way even if it's like on a scale that doesn't make sense. And uh I don't know. There's like some good grooves. And uh, one that we didn't talk about that I really love is That's Me. Um, It's got that weird like twisted guitar riff. And I'm also like a sucker for the fast forwarded like biography song where he's like, that's me as an infant. That's me getting my degree. And like now I don't know what what the fuck I'm doing. And I'm like, I'm I'm divorced and I, you know. Uh, and uh, like sort of trying to figure out some cosmicness that's not there. So I'm, I'm a sucker for those like disgruntled old man songs. And there are a couple of great ones here. Um, like, what is it all? They're all like, what does it all add up to? I don't know. You know, uh, like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that it, yeah, it's, it's something that is, that that's going on here and being nailed in here about a songwriting that, uh, he does much better on subsequent albums. Um, and uh, I don't know. I don't love the Wild Thornberry song, but... <laughs> uh, I like that one. Sam will defend that one. Sorry. Yeah. The vocal processing on that is cool. Yeah. Tim. Um, I, I'll, give, I'll give it a fantasy. I think it's a A for effort. You got to try. You got to experiment. And some some you know really pay off like Graceland which was I'm sure seen as insane as it was coming together or really dangerous or potentially you know uh, risky um, and you know I don't think it fully I don't think the Eno uh, w- collaboration is entirely successful I don't think it totally works but I appreciate that he's uh, trying and trying and trying to 
you know, change his sound or uh, experiment with different ways of uh, housing his songs in production. And I do think there's a pl- plenty of good lyrics and plenty of good tunes uh, scattered throughout the record. So, yeah, A for effort. Yeah, I'm going to keep it boring and say I think it's fantasy too. Um, I, I dislike... There's certain moments where, yeah, when the Eno stuff gets really bombastic and you do have this feeling of, like, Paul Simon in the new millennium and it's like this kind of ostentatiously high-tech sort of sound that is kind of lame, but when it does work, I think it actually works pretty well. The intro to a song called Another Galaxy is like this long kind of meandering thing of this little tinny drum beat and like several different, like just beautiful little Paul Simon guitar figures enter in different tones and kind of layer on top of each other in ways that it's like, yeah, this probably wouldn't have happened on a Paul Simon album where he was going for a more traditional approach. And so if it can produce like little moments of beauty like that, that are sort of original and like they feel really particular to the combination of Brian Eno and Paul Simon, like I'm all about that. Does every song feel that way? No, there are a a few clunkers, but the fact that there are a few that really do have this kind of singular feeling to them is enough for me. And uh, I I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. On the morning of her wedding day Well, Tim, what can we, what can you shout out or what what do you have on the docket coming up here? Uh, You know, the record is on digital uh, September 25th. You could check out the singles, Fear of Death and Nothing, which are both out now. Um, yeah, subscribe to Office Hours and and uh, got more stuff coming. Moonbase will be coming to Showtime whenever. And hopefully we'll make some new stuff once we can uh, be around human beings again. It seems like you're doing a lot just for not being able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Keeping busy. Keeping busy. But it was nice talking to you guys. I love talking about music and Paul Simon in particular. Yeah. Thanks so, so much for coming on this. It's huge for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right, guys. Have a good one. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Late Era. And thank you again so much to Tim Heidecker for joining us today. Um, we will be back in two weeks. Sam, what are we talking about on our next episode? Next week, we'll be talking about Don Was's The Was Sessions, Volume 1, a star-studded album featuring all original compositions by Don Was. I can't wait to get into it. All right, good night, folks. The universe loves a drama, you know. Late Era is hosted by Andy Cush, Winston Cook-Wilson, and Sam Sadowski. It is edited and produced by Winston Cook-Wilson. Additional production by Ryan Weiner. The executive producers of Late Era are Brian Brinkman and RJP. Logo designed by Liz B. Art and Design. Later is part of Osiris Media.